Welcome to the wonderful world of wine, exploring all things wine with you. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi, and you can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the wonderful world of wine. Hey, Mark, I've been getting a number of questions from people about how they can actually listen to this radio show and this podcast if they're away from their radio. So I wanted to let everyone know that there are a couple of different ways that you can listen to us if you are not local to Franklin and wanted to hear our show. So of course, first of all, is to tune into WFPR, which is Franklin Public Radio, and online they are WFPR.FM, which is the radio station's website site and you can listen live on the radio station there. Or if you want to listen to the show after we've recorded it and after it's been on the air a little bit, please go to our Facebook page at The Wonderful World of Wine and we post those at the end of the week when they have been on the air. Yes, Kim, and we're very excited that our archives are now podcasts that are available on iTunes and SoundCloud and all you have to do is search on those The Wonderful World of Wine and you can hear all the past shows. So we read a very interesting article in Bloomberg the other day, which is telling us about how the country of New Zealand has definitely become one of the biggest exporters of wine to the rest of the world. And it's not just Sauvignon Blanc anymore, is it, Mark? No, and that's mainly what we see from this region is Sauvignon Blanc. Surprisingly, the number four exporter in the world to the U.S., number one being Italy, number two being Australia, number three being France. So I was really shocked at exports into U.S. We, they were that high. Right. So a country that hasn't been making wine for very, very long. We really only started seeing commercial wine production in the late 70s and the early 80s, 1970s and 1980s, that is. And just to become this wine powerhouse on the world stage is pretty incredible. I never really get a lot of questions about New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. It seems like people just go to it. It's the go-to warm weather or yeah. crisp wine to try. It's a style that's very easy for people to understand understand. If people find one that they like, then they'll try another one and they like that one too. And they'll try another one and they like that one too. So I think it's a, a really easy product for either retailers to have on their shelves or for restaurant wine lists to have. And if they can't have a particular producer and they switch to a different producer, I still feel like that makes the consumer happy because a lot of it is very much of a similar style. And New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc is the go-to educational tasting wine because it's so distinctive. But this article focused on on the forgotten grape of New Zealand, which is Pinot Noir. So Kim, have you tried any Pinot Noirs from New Zealand? I have, and I have for a number of years. And it's very interesting because I feel like the winemakers and the promotional folks of New Zealand wines have been trying for so long to get their Pinot Noir on the world stage, you know, get it out there so that people understand that New Zealand is not just Sauvignon Blanc. And I feel like finally it, it, is, it is becoming something that people understand and that people are starting to make a go-to, which is really nice because it's a lovely style of Pinot Noir. You know, there are a lot of growing regions within New Zealand that are nice and cool, which is what Pinot Noir loves. So not only is it a great climate for those really bright, citrusy, grapefruity Sauvignon Blancs, like people really tend to gravitate toward, but for these really sort of subtle but nice fruit, a little bit of spice, very, very appealing style of Pinot Noir as well. I totally agree. I think this is one of the great finds in the wine world is that 
that. If you haven't tried New Zealand Pinot Noir, it has the absolute perfect climate. I mean, think about it. It's an island surrounded by ocean. So it has cool nights. It has hot, sunny days, which is perfect for Pinot Noir grapes. So varietally correct. Exactly. And a lot of the Pinots that we have been seeing over the last few years coming out of New Zealand have been from a region called Central Otago, which is really the main Pinot growing area of the country. It's way, way in the south. It's the most southern growing area in the country. And now we are actually starting to see some from other regions as well, like including Martinborough, which is known for their Chardonnays. It's more and more becoming a thing. And I think it's as wine producers are starting to figure out their specific soil types and their microclimates and figuring out what grows best where. They're learning that a lot of Pinot can, can be produced very nicely down there. And surprisingly, the, the soil is very unique and they do have a lot of high altitude. They have mountain ranges down there yeah. in the South Island. So it's perfect conditions for the grape. It's, it's the number two planted grape, of course, to Sauvignon Blanc. Most of the region you'll see here is Marlborough, like you were saying, Kim. The other regions, very rare. But did you notice one big thing in this article? They recommended wines. Did you notice the price point? I didn't. They started at $37 and went up to $100. Mm. So, we don't see a whole lot of that price range of New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc over Yeah, here. but it's difficult when you're looking on the shelf. You're not finding $10 Pinot Noirs from this region. Right. Typically, the high teens, you know, mid-20s is the, the range. And I think maybe that's why the consumer doesn't know much about it because a lot of people might be afraid to stock this wine at that price yeah, point. Yeah, that's not surprising, especially since I think that a lot of consumers, because they are familiar with Sauvignon Blancs in like the 10 to 20 range, then to see wines from the same country, but then three times the price. That could be a little bit discouraging for consumers, maybe. Yeah. But on wine lists, I think in a restaurant, perfect wines to put on your wine list because a lot of people don't know about them, but they are such great food wines. And they can definitely compete with some of the other, I would say, Pinots in this price range that we see from Oregon and a different style from what we see from California. So I would say that if a wine list has a number of nice Pinot Noirs from Oregon, that wines of a similar style and caliber from New Zealand really would fit quite quite nicely in with them. Yeah, it's a great point. They seem to be much lighter in color, but 99% of the time I've seen they're always 100% Pinot Noir grape, whereas California, you're not getting that 100%. So it's a different color. It's a different weight on your mouth. So I think that is a key thing if you want true Pinot Noir. Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We're your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you'd like more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. And if you'd like more information about our show, please go to Facebook and look for The Wonderful World of Wine. Now we'd like to talk about what are the global wine trends right now. This was an article from Morning Advertiser, and this is a British perspective perspective, Kim, on global wine trends, but very interesting and a lot of things that we've touched on in the past. Yeah, even though it comes from a different country that has a different wine market and different wine rules and laws, I think there's still some good takeaways for us here in the States, especially when it comes to looking at the global wine supply and there were some areas of the world that are wine producing areas that had pretty tough years last year in 2017. Yeah, and they listed all the European biggies, France, 
France, uh, Spain, Italy. We've talked about uh, South Africa recently. So there's a lot of production problems around the world. And a lot of it is, is very weather related. You still need to remember that wine is an agricultural product. And because most of it is labeled with the vintage, so that means that that particular bottle that you might be taking home has a date on it. And that says what year those grapes were grown in. So it's not necessarily when it was bottled or when it was made, but the year that those grapes were made. And there were a number of issues dealing with the weather and production issues that there were a lot of places where their production was really down this past year. I've seen this so much in the in the general news feeds lately that just saying, you know, production's down, this problem, that problem. But where I get it a lot, and I'm reminded every day is when a salesperson comes into me, they're saying, you better get this French wine now because the, the price is going up. Or yeah. you get this Spanish wine now because the price is going up. So is it prices going up and there's limited availability? Right. Is that In what you're seeing? In a few instances like uh, Burgundy, I believe, they might skip a whole vintage and not produce anything. So hmm. that you have to stock up if you want to have anything to sell. How is this impacting the current rosé season? Is it at all? No, this this year has been fine. The 17 rosés have been fine. So it'll be interesting on the 18 side from Europe what happens. Yeah, very interesting. So we're not just talking about, and most people are familiar with, the wildfires that were taking place in California this past year. There were also a lot of wildfire issues in Spain and Portugal, but a lot of it has to do with water as well. So we have drought issues in South Africa, and then there was a lot of just terrible weather across France in this in last spring that took out a lot of like the baby grapes on the plants. And so then, of course, there were no more grapes left on those grapevines to turn into full-grown grapes that could ma- be made into wine. So yeah, kind of a kind of a tough situation. And it does get reflected in not only what is available, but then the price for the remaining wine that's there. A lot of people ask, why does the weather affect now? In wine grape growing, it's basically two seasons, correct, Kim, where there's a big issue when it's starting to bud or starting to develop or at the end when it needs to be harvested. So anytime you have a frost or bad weather during any of those two time frames, it impacts the overall production. Right. And spring is especially precarious with the growing because you do have those baby buds. And sometimes those grapevines, if you have a slightly warmer end to your winter, might start to bud a little bit earlier and then you get a freeze or you get hail or you get sleet or you get nasty weather like that. That can really put a damper on what you can produce for that year. Now let's move on to another, you know, your favorite subject, fizzy, bubbly wines. They talked about the EU fizz or Prosecco opening the door for so many other sparkling wines from Europe. Right. So this this article did say that sort of the sort of the, the Prosecco bubble has burst a little bit. And I, th- I think you're right where you say that Prosecco kind of opened the door for people to be familiar with other styles of bubbly besides champagne. So over the last few years, you know, we've really seen this tremendous growth in, pr- in Prosecco sales. And it's very cool for me to see all these other sparkling wines that, of course, I've been drinking for a while, but now to be a little bit more recognizable for people. So it's not just Prosecco from Italy, but there are these other things from Italy as well. So French Accorda, which has been made for a very, very long time. And then some of these other sparklers that maybe they're seeing a little bit more in the English market than we are here. But you also can't discount Cava from Spain, which is very, very popular both here and in other countries as well. You see the same trends I do. And there's, you know, word out there that says, well, Prosecco is dropping down in popularity. But it's interesting that a lot of the big producers right now are jumping on the bandwagon. So like Santa Margarita just came out with a Prosecco. So if it's the stats are down, why are the big guys? 
guys now jumping in. Yeah, so I don't I, think Prosecco's going anywhere. Yeah, I think it's here to stay. And you also mentioned other styles. I mean, the Italians call fizzante or slightly fizzy wine. And I see a little increase in Lambrusco. You mentioned fully sparkling French Accorder. I think because of the Prosecco, people are now opened up to other sparkling from other areas. And maybe when you were talking about England, they were a big consumer of Prosecco, but now their sparkling wine is going so well, I think they're getting a little bit away from that and, and now are drinking their own. Yeah, that's something for the English market that I don't think can be overlooked is the fact that they do have their own native production of sparkling wines, which is really exciting. And I've had a couple of them and they're pretty darn good. You would never, I feel like 20 years ago, think, oh yeah, I'm going to go get myself a bottle of lowercase c champagne from England. But it's there and it's good. I can see this definitely making inroads in their own market. And then hopefully we'll see a little bit more of it here. I was just going to ask you if you've tried it. Yeah, I, I, I like them. I haven't seen much on the shelves lately. Yeah, so. there are a few out there that I've tried and I'm excited by them. You've been listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Kim and Mark. You can find me online at vinitaswineworks.com and you can find a little bit more about Mark at franklinliquors.com. We've been talking about global wine trends and how the 2017 vintage played out and what people can expect from the coming year. Talked a little bit about sparkling wine, a little bit about how 2017 was a tough vintage weather-wise for a lot of places, but it was a good year for a lot of other places. So we're seeing a trend in the industry of people really paying attention to other places that maybe they hadn't spent so much time drinking their wines out of. So one that really comes to mind is South America for me. Yes, uh, Argentina, Chile, always popular wines. For Argentina, they mentioned Malbec being so popular now that Argentinians are actually sourcing fruit now because they need to produce more. Right. And I've been starting to see some Malbec from other places. So I've seen some Chilean Malbec. I mean, of course, course, we have some California Malbec that's being grown, but it really is still quite the hot grape variety. When you talk about Malbec, what do you feel is like the profile if someone asks you? I know uh, I'm going off on the global that, trend No, thing, that's okay. I just like to hit on that. So I think when people are talking about Malbec, they are thinking about Argentinian Malbec. And there are some examples from France that are, that's the traditional homeland of this grape. But I don't think that people know that style. I think people know the South American style. So I think what people are looking for and are thinking about are pretty full-bodied red wines. So if you like Cabernets, you probably will also like Malbecs. But there's a little bit more of a fruitiness, I find, to the Malbecs and sometimes a bit higher alcohol. I know sometimes I've gotten taken by surprise by how high the alcohol level can be in certain ones. We're talking like 15, 16, maybe up to 17% here. And there's just, there's a lot of flavor and there's a lot of concentration, but still relatively easy to drink, I think. I don't necessarily feel like the tannins kind of whap you. It's um, it's still a, it's a fun red wine to drink. Yeah, I'm so happy when I ask you a question. It goes the direction that I, I was trying to bring it to <laughs> because definitely the Argentinian Malbec, I get this blueberry nice fruit mm. all the time, a dark fruit. But like you were saying, the France, the Cahors region, it's more of an earthy style yeah, to me. Yeah, it's not fruity. The French ones are, I think people are surprised if they try a Malbec that's labeled Malbec, but it's from France, like especially from Cahors like you just mentioned. And it's not that big, jammy, fruity, Argentinian style. It's darker 
And like you said, it's earthy. The tannins, I think, are a little tougher, a little tighter. So it can be a little surprising. But I think it's also a fun way for people to understand that the same grape will taste different from different places. And I always like exposing people to that different. So were they saying they will start sourcing from Chile, South Africa, and France? So I'm, I'm thinking it's not from the traditional French region. It might be from southern France yeah. to give it more fruit. I think it's more the bulk grape growing areas and not so much the fine wine growing areas because there are a lot of places that grow a lot of grapes commercially for being turned into wine that is a little bit more affordable, a little bit less expensive. So I can definitely see that this would be more what they would be looking for if they're trying to make make their own wines, but try to keep the price down a little bit for that market. Yeah, same style. Same exactly. style. Okay. So now uh, in Chile, we always talk, for me, it's all about the whites, the fresh whites, the Sauvignon Blancs, the Chardonnays, always trending. For you, Kim, do you find any reds that interest you from Chile or is it all whites for you as well? For me, I am not too much of a fan of the reds of Chile. There's a certain flavor in there that just doesn't appeal to me. That's not to say that they're bad wines. I think there are a lot of very well-made Chilean wines, but they just don't, for me, they don't They don't taste very good. But what's interesting about Chile is they have come onto our market as a lot of inexpensive, not quite jug wine, but a lot of things in 1.5 liters, bigger bottles from, say, producers like Concha y Toro, folks like that. And they really gained a foothold in the less expensive categories. And now I feel like we're seeing that price moving up a little bit. So we are not seeing quite that bulk wine from there. We are starting to see better bottles. Um, and th- these have always been around, but now I feel like they're on people's radars a little bit more. Yeah, I'm kind of worried now, Kim, because this is two for two today that we agree on something Uh-oh. because I totally I just told agree you I don't the... like wines from Chile. Well, but... <laughs> no, the reds, I'm on the same page with you because Chilean reds to me have this, I don't know if it's a vegetal thing going on, but it's very distinctive. It's almost like the New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. When I get a red in front of me from Chile, I can automatically say, oh, it's Chilean red. And for me, it's something I don't see consumers liking because of the aroma and the flavor profile. It's a great food wine, but every day just drinking, I don't see it. It's not a cocktail wine. It's not the kind of wine that you can just have a glass of, I don't feel. Yeah, food wine. Right. Definitely, definitely food Whereas wine. Whereas the whites can be that way. And I'm su- actually surprised that Chilean Sauvignon Blancs haven't taken off like I kind of thought that they would because stylistically they are more on par with those New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs or those California Sauvignon Blancs. You know, they're they're fresh and they're bright and they're pretty and they're really yummy and they're easy to drink. But we haven't seen too, too much of that. But maybe, maybe going forward we will. Yeah, I love the whites. They're just so what the grape should taste like. If you get a Sauvignon Blanc, that's what Sauvignon Blanc should taste like. And you mentioned the bulk wine. Most of, well, not say most, but a lot of the big uh, California companies are now sourcing Chilean fruit. So you'll see that uh, on the label from Chile. Interesting. And so for a final area of, I think, undiscovered wines for a lot of consumers, but that is trending, um, are wines from Eastern Europe. So not necessarily countries that people would have as their go-to places for wine, but that are producing some really good stuff. So places like Hungary, there's a lot more wine on the market besides just bull's blood, which I think is the red that most people are familiar with from Hungary. So there are a lot of different grape varieties, a lot of interesting places. Macedonia is another one where there's starting to be some interesting wines from Bulgaria. 
Bulgaria has always been a big wine producer. And so it's a lot of countries that used to be communist countries and didn't necessarily have the infrastructure or the government support to make wine and then export it to other parts of the world. So these are places that are really just starting to come into their own on the international market for wine. And these are regions that I think people hear them and like, you know, they don't think of wine coming from there. I mean, Bulgaria, Romania, Slovenia, but their value is really, really good wine, Mm -hmm. right? For the price. Have you tried any like a $10 Slovenian wine? It's good stuff. Yeah. And there's a lot of things in sort of that 10 to $20 price point, which for me is sort of my sweet spot. I think that there's a lot of variety and a lot of interesting wines of good character from cool places that you can find in that price range. And there's a lot out there to try. And I try to encourage people to try new things and don't be afraid to buy that $12 bottle, that $15 bottle that you might not have any idea what it tastes like. Just take the plunge and (laughs) try something new. And it is really exciting that there are all of these new places that are coming onto people's radars. Yeah, we're screaming this out a lot, Kim. But when you look at it for consumers, if you're looking at a a bottle of uh, Greek red wine for $10 and a a cab from California, $10 on the shelf, people are not going to these regions. It's just a consumer thing. I mean, Mm -hmm. you want to go with something you probably know, but we always say explore these regions. You'll find some great values. There is that unfamiliarity factor, which I think definitely makes people hesitate. But you said with a $10 bottle from here versus a $10 bottle from there, we're still seeing that with places like Portugal. Like a $12 bottle of wine from Portugal can be phenomenal. Very, very cool wines from places that just on their label, you might not understand what they're trying to tell you. You might not know the place, you might not know the grape, but that the juice inside that bottle is solid. And you're probably like me, Kim, when you taste something from one of these regions, you're like, you're thinking, I'm thinking, how can I put this on my shelf and sell it? And you're probably thinking, how can I educate people to go to this? Mm -hmm. And it's just mind boggling. Someone will bring me in, say a Greek wine and I'll be, I love this wine, but how can I pass this on to get people to enjoy it? Right. And that's something that is frustrating for us, but also exciting for us because we are trying to get people to understand that there's this whole wide world of wine out there besides your familiar New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs, your California Cabernets, your Pinot Noirs. Um, There's, you know, thousands of grape varieties out there and different places and interesting people who are making wine every day. It's, It's our job to get it to you. And we hope that we can educate you a little bit more so that you can go out and look for those items. You've been listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, exploring all things wine with you. If you would like to get more information about Kim, please visit her website at vinitaswineworks.com. And if you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. A topic that pops up from time to time for us is wine scores and numbers and reviews and how valuable are those to, to consumers. I feel like I get this question from time to time in my tastings. Sometimes wine score from a publication will be put up on a shelf in order to be there to help sell the bottle. And sometimes they aren't. And so we do seem to get people questioning the validity of them sometimes. And what does this number score mean? So what's your take on on scores of wines, Mark? I'm always wondering what the consumers think about this when they see a score. Basically, you can find good scores and bad scores on any wine if you search for it. But is there a true understanding 
understanding of what that means. I mean, if you see something that says this is 90 points, do people know what that means? Does it mean quality? Does it mean you trust that it's a true thing? With the internet, like I said, you can find someone putting out a number to promote something or market something that really is false. Yeah, I think it can be a little sneaky and a little tricky because anybody can put out a scoring system. So a lot of it does depend on, hey, where is this review coming from? Or who gave this wine that score? And there are a number of publications that are very, very well known, like, you know, Wine Spectator, Food and Wine, Wine Enthusiast. There are a lot of publications that every couple of weeks or every month, they'll give scores to a whole boatload of wines, and then you'll start to see those scores on the shelves. But then there could be just some random wine blogger who is like, I'm going to give this wine a 92. And someone could write a shelf talker with that random wine blogger's score on their little card and stick that up too. So you do really kind of need to pay attention to where is that score coming from? Is that a publication that has a track record of what do they have a track record of? Are you familiar with the other wines that they are scoring? Or are you just going by, hey, this got a 91, that must be a good wine. So you do kind of need to think about it and not just kind of have a knee jerk reaction of, ooh, I see a 90 plus whatever score on there. That must mean that this is a good bottle of wine for me. It has to be someone that you trust. I totally agree with that. And for me, I follow a publication and I see a review. If that profile matches mine, I really don't care about the score if they're tasting and smelling what I did in that same wine. So as you said, Kim, I score wines on my shelf talkers. So if you come into me and you like what I recommended, then you start following my scores if that you follow that a little bit. Right. And, and it's hard because it's hard wine scores are so subjective and it's just one person's opinion of that wine. And everything about tasting wine tends to be more subjective than it is objective. So a lot of it comes down to, do you have a, f- a similar taste in wines that the person who's scoring it does? Like you just said, you find that you have a lot in common taste-wise with somebody else, then then yes, you know, you can kind of play off of each other's opinions and scores about that particular wine. There's two point systems that you can find. In the US, we typically use the 100 point scale and you'll typically not see anything below 70. I mean, 50 is basically the starting point. It goes up to 100 points. And then in Europe is a is a 20 point system. So I think that can confuse people if you're seeing someone putting a review for a European and say it's an 18 mm-hmm. and you're used to the, the US system. So that I think that throws people off. But I'll tell you my, my biggest problem with point systems. If you have a, say, a 2017 vintage wine right now and it's reviewed and it's given 90 points, in three years, is that a 90 point wine, right? So they're not redoing, 90% of the time, they're not redoing that point system to tell you what it's evolving to as far as points. And there can be a lot of variability. So if someone tastes one wine at a certain point in time, and then six months later, they try that exact same wine, same vintage, same producer, same everything, they may give that a different score because there is something called bottle variation where each individual bottle might taste not exactly the same as its sister bottles in that case or in the same shipment or even in the same vintage. So there can be a lot of variability, which I think is, is very frustrating for consumers. Think, okay, I'm getting this particular bottle. That should always taste the same. And sometimes it just doesn't. And I think that that can be really hard too when people are trying to legitimately score things and the next day they might taste the same thing and it'll taste totally different. So that can be hard too. It's very important to look. If you see a shelf talker, it's in front of a wine. It says this wine has 90 points. A lot of 
times, and it was just recently in the news where people were upset that these things weren't updated. So they, if you had a 2017 on the shelf, but the points were for the 16 or the 15 vintage, that's technically false advertising for the product. So for me, I always date my tasting notes on my rating system so I know when I tasted it. And if I revisit it, I'll redate it again. So it's interesting to see if it was 90 points and then a year later it gets better or it gets worse. Uh, but it's very important to trust what you're reading for the products. Do you, do you find that, Kim, at all? Yeah, that's always been, I think, a big problem with putting up shelf talkers with scores on them or, or some other sort of promotional material next to a bottle in the store is that as not only the consumer, you have to be aware that you need to kind of read the fine print and see what is the bottle that you're buying versus what is the information telling you. But I know from the other side of it, being the employee at that store, to keep on top of all of those little pieces of paper that are supposed to be telling you something about that bottle. And vintages change constantly. And if you're in a store that has, say, 3,000 different wines, that can be really hard to stay on top of. I love when these blogs, this was a wine gourd blog site. I love when they bring these things to the attention of consumers because, like you say, Kim, it is a lot of work. And you'd be surprised how geeky I get when a salesman, I'll taste the wine and they'll ship me another vintage and I'll send it back. And they're like, well, why did you do that? I'm like, well, I didn't taste that vintage. That's not geeky. That's well, that's good business, for, I think. For us, we, you know, <laughs> this, and surprisingly, a lot of people in the industry don't understand that, why it's being done or why we're keeping those shelf talkers updated or why we don't want the marketing material. We want our own personal notes. So, and I've heard it both ways. You probably, when you walk around my store, you'll see my little notes that no one could read but me sometimes. <laughs> but there's a whole method to that. To that. There's, and, and there's pros and cons to both sides. Do you have the handmade shelf talkers or do you have people in the store who know what they're talking about so you don't need shelf talkers? Well, some different systems work better in different situations. And you're just one example of a wine store out there. But then there are other ones that are bigger or smaller or have different, different layouts and different selection and all sorts of things. So wine stores will do what is best for them and best for their customers. But it can be difficult when you're trying to really pay attention to is this little bit of information about this wine really serving the purpose and and being doing what it's supposed to be doing for the consumer. What about you as a shopper, Kim? When you go in a store, because I hear a lot of times I put things out because I feel a lot of people just want to read and make the decision for themselves. I'm there to guide them if they want to ask. But when you're shopping, are you reading those notes or are you asking questions? I do a little bit of both. If I know what I want or if I'm familiar with what is up on the shelf, then I will generally tend to kind of keep to myself. And if there are shelf talkers on the shelf, I, I will read them and I will try to pay attention to what is being being highlighted. Sometimes there are stores that will put like staff selection, little notes on their bottles saying, yes, this staff member recommends this one because of this, or we all recommend this one for Thanksgiving dinner or whatnot. It's those kind of things that I'll pay attention to. And then if really, if I'm completely in the weeds and it might be things that I don't have any familiarity with, then generally I will try to ask for some help. I like hearing how people shop. You know, I'm a shopper but I, and I love to see different things, how they're presented, but I feel putting out more information is better than if there's nothing on the shelf. So you walking up and you're looking for an oaky Chardonnay, you're on your own. It, it, I mean, you are trusting that it says this is oak, but unless someone personally tells you what they're tasting to give you some sort of 
guidance. I think it's difficult. And especially for a wine store where I feel like so many of the bottles can look so similar, you kind of get a deer in the headlights kind of a look and be completely overwhelmed by 100 bottles on the shelf. And if if you're less savvy about wine, sure, that's going to be completely overwhelming. So I think having a bit of information there is helpful, but then also having friendly staff who know what the heck they're talking about is also great. Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Please listen in to past podcasts, past radio shows. Leave us some comments and we'll talk to you again next week.